0: Hello and welcome back to BTA Charity Voices Podcast with me Anne Hughes and welcome to the final podcast of Series 1 and of 2022 and I'm delighted today be to be joined by Bruce Tate and Fari Cameron of BTA. So Bruce, Fari, what are your reflections on the first year of the podcast? We did of course have 43 podcasts in there, so it's been a lot of conversations. Bruce, how has it gone?
1: I, I, I think it's been fascinating, and it really has. There's such a variety of people there, but for me there was a commonality of what a lot of them mm-hmm. were saying. And I guess it's that thing about, one was about purpose, why people are there and it's about purpose. Mm-hmm. And the other one is about how they got there, which almost seems to be by accident. <laughs> so oh. People's stories were brilliant. What do you think, Barry?
2: I couldn't agree more. Most people's journey into charity doesn't seem to be planned. It just seems to have been a natural progression. I know mine certainly was. And yet, again, the variety, you know, from having... You know, the new CEO of the CIOF with Katie on in the second podcast was great. And it really kind of set the tone for the for the whole year. So it's been, it's been great. Yeah, and that was really good that we were also seeing the
0: impact Scotland's having on even that national picture for Katie, who obviously we all know quite well, to be taking on that role of chief executive of the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. It was a great way to kick off 2022, really, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And fundraising is, is kind of the the wind beneath the wings of the voluntary sector, isn't it? And it's crucial to every sort of organisation. But I think... As a long-standing member of the Institute, I, mean, I think I was, I don't know, the, the, the 15th in Scotland or something like mm-hmm. that all those years ago, it's been marvellous to see the way that the Institute of Fundraising has, has, has come back from a from a few you know fairly bad years, to be honest. And mm-hmm. uh, under Katie's leadership, it's looking strong, it's looking vibrant, it's looking open and transparent, which is the key thing as well. So um, they really good to start this process off with, so it's just a sort of strong message from the, the, the Scottish fundraising community and it's playing its part in the UK fundraising community too. To
2: bookend that with, with Hazel Crombie at the very end as her head of Scotland for the CIOF, and how, how she works with Katie and how that's going to impact Scottish fundraising as well, I think, was really lovely.
0: Yeah. The other thing that really came through for me, I think, was when we talked about leadership. I interviewed, for me personally, it was great getting to speak to so many people, many of whom I had never met before and still haven't because it was all done virtually. But the intentional leader is the one that I think really stands out for me. And that came through so many times. You know, you mentioned there about a Cosvo as well, Vary, and Patricia Armstrong. We've got Judith McCleary on recently from Judo Scotland. Paul McKenzie at the Teenage Cancer Trust. Hazel Brown at Cornerstone. So many leaders that were talking about how they choose to lead. I mean, Bruce as a leader in the sector, as somebody who's a well-known leader in the sector, what was your feelings on how leadership was talked about in the last 43 conversations we've had?
1: There's been a few leaders there that I know. Um, that There might be people that BTA have placed as chief executive, and there are a few. And I thought I knew their story, but I didn't. Yeah. You know, When I heard them go into the depth, particularly when they started talking about what their passions were, I maybe saw them in in a different light, a stronger light, knowing their whole story. When I think, for example, of Harvey Tilly, the chief operating officer of the Independent Living Fund, and the effort that he put into becoming a leader in a not-for-profit organization, including studying and doing you know sort of various roles at different levels, I I, I didn't realize. I knew Harvey; he was a great guy, and I knew he was a strong leader. But think about the depth and the the passion he's gone into to achieve that role. Mm-hmm. I think Scottish voluntary organisations in particular should be really proud of some of the people that run them. Yeah. You know, that's, that's 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 the sense I got listening to people. I, I always, on a Sunday night, i take a quiet hour to myself and just sit in my favourite armchair and listen to the podcast. And I was really impressed, really impressed with some of the leaders there.
2: Yeah, yeah. What about you, Vada? What was your reflection on the leadership? And I think listening to, especially to the leader's, podcasts for me it was that realization of there's a real difference between a leader and a manager or a director mm-hmm. um, and somebody who does the day-to-day and the real code activity and and maneuvers the organization to somebody who actually sees further along the line than that and is actually leading it along that line mm-hmm. and it came across really clearly in a number of podcasts I think that it's a certain type of person that has the ability to be a real true leader that people will get behind and follow, which is, it was just, it was so interesting to me that there was a number of sort of common qualities between those those yeah. podcasts.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think there was for me certainly as well that those people like me, I would say probably, I think it's you too, Bruce, whose entire career has been in the sector. So we never worked anywhere else first. And the one that I think really struck me with that was Graham Luke at, Scout Scotland because he started as a scout <laughs> and is now the chief executive of the Scouts and that was therefore a lifelong journey that he's been on to really come through his whole journey and, and remain in the sector and become the, the biggest scout which is what he did. How were your reflections on those people? Like there was also Elizabeth Balgobin a few weeks ago again talking about that career right through the sector Bruce, what was your reflection on that? Because you've been similar, haven't you?
1: Actually, I was a roadie for a rock band <laughs> it was my first job. No, uh, and I did one. that for a couple of years. Then I did a bit of PR. And then I came into the sector 19, no, 20, a long, long time ago. Let's mm-hmm. just say a long, long time ago. Uh-huh. So I think, you know, everybody's got a, a slightly different story, but it does seem to be that... One way or another, we ended up in this sector. And it's a broad kirk. You know, there's all sorts of people. I know people who are high flyers from the corporate world or not quite so high flyers in the corporate world, and people who run public bodies, Yeah. local authorities people that are entrepreneurs, people that have always been in the sector. And I think we need more of that. I think we need people for whom serving the voluntary sector is a vocation. It's not something that they fell into. You know, it's great to have had a bit of life experience, first of all. But for the consistency, there needs to be almost a taught route to doing most of the things that we do, yeah. certainly in terms of fundraising. Mm-hmm. As you know, I do a lot of work in Canada, and most of the fundraisers there go to university and study philanthropy. And then they come out and become fundraisers. Well, usually on a, p- a couple of years placement. First of all, yeah, I think it's great that so many people come and lend their skills to the sector. But also love to see a stream of the best young bright talent in Scotland getting into the sector.
0: Yeah, yeah, because the ones that are, I, I mean, there's obviously a beer who works, a beer McIntyre who does so much work with BTA. The others that stood out for me was Taki Suleiman, who I have never been so, like, wowed by somebody's CV in my life. When he talked through all the jobs he'd done, I was a bit like, oh, my God, my life seems as if I've been sitting and my bum doing nothing for the entire <laughs> in my career because he's done so much. But what I also love was Sophie Castell from Myeloma, UK, who once worked in America for Coca-Cola and did their big ad campaigns. I mean, what a journey, what a talent to bring, what insights to bring into the sector, isn't it? Vary, what did you think about some of those transfers of knowledge that came into the sector?
2: I, mean, I think I would absolutely echo what Bruce has just said there. I mean, my, my own journey was that I was in sales and marketing for a long time. And, you know, I, I think like most people who end up in the sector just felt as though they had to be doing something better with their nine-to-five than just... I think, as I said at the time, sending their bosses on nice holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there had to be something more, more than that. And and it was so for me. It was I had to go and find it. I had to, it didn't come to me. I had to go and find it. And I think, absolutely, it's it should be a, a course that you can do in university for sure, or college, or something that you can pick up. And it shouldn't just be by t- always by chance. But when it is, my goodness, what great things that we can bring we can bring to the sector for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And one of those final questions that I asked everybody that was on the podcast was about what makes a team so good. And you know, there were so many people that talked about team and the importance of team, a couple of them that really highlighted for me was Debbie Mooney at, at Marie Curie, Ian McAndrew at Chaz, Susan Williams, who obviously is freelance, but also very involved with the CIOF. I mean, Bruce, you, you lead a team, you've led many teams vary. What are your thoughts on that? If we reflect on everything everybody said in your own knowledge as well about what makes a team so good?
2: For me, I think the, the commonality amongst it all is that it, it, a good team needs diversity. Mm-hmm. It needs different types of people to really work and an understanding and a trust mm-hmm. between them. And if you've got those, if you've got a team that you can work beside, that you can trust, that you can use their skills, that they can use yours, and it's, it's you know, a fluid thing between you all, then that's kind of the best, the best team you could work with for yeah. sure.
1: Yeah.
2: What about
1: you, Bruce? Yeah, variety, definitely. There's, I hate to use footballing analogies, but you can't have a team full of strikers or a team full of keepers. I don't think Argentina would have won the World Cup last night if Messi had been in goals <laughs> or Martinez had been up front. So you need to be people in the right position and they need to be you know, chosen for their skill sets. We're all different and that's our strength. I think the best teams. And then it was really interesting, the various different answers you got to that question mm-hmm. over the course of the series and... For me, I think it's it's bringing people together who've got a range of skills, but the range of skills needed to do the job, but also to offer different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are the best teams. I'm really, really pleased. That's exactly what we have at BTA. Everybody's different. Everybody's different, but everybody's respectful of other people's
0: points of view you guys are obviously in recruitment so you're speaking to people all the time about what their team could look like when it comes to how they recruit and you're getting their candidates for them and all that but it's something i also try to impress upon people a lot as well as what are you missing get somebody who's better at something that you are not so good at get somebody that's better than that on your team because that makes you so much stronger doesn't it and it takes a wee bit of humility i think probably doesn't it bruce
1: our laziness, I think it is, Anne, and some <laughs> things are just, I can't be bothered learning that, so bringing somebody who knows it better than me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and then sometimes I really mean that. There's data, bases, and I, for oh, example. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I've always had, to, I, I, you know that, you know that of me. I'm, I surround myself with um, very skilled, talented people mm-hmm. um, who are much better than me at all the things that they do. Yeah. Um, you know, all of them. That's, I think the only skill I have is finding people that are better than me at things.
0: Uh-huh. And the other section that I wanted to pull up, and it's a role that all three of us do play, is the the role of the board and the charity sector. And that position as trustee. And it was actually near the start of the podcast, I had one chair on who came from private sector, Tom Elvin, a way back at the start from Men Matter Scotland. And then it almost became apparent to me I didn't need to get trustees on because most of the people that come on actually were also trustees. You know, a lot of them still serve that role. Obviously, I'm on the board a Children First, Vary. I know you're on the board of Enchanted Forest. And I know that you're the chair of a radio station as well, Bruce, a local sort of a community radio station. What has been apparent to you about that role of the board? Because I know just even as we speak, BTA have got a lot of trustees that they're recruiting just now on your website right now. There's loads on there, isn't there, Bruce? So there is still always a need. And we hear anecdotally all the time about the need for a good board, the need for good trustees, that they get the wonder that this role brings to their lives, no matter whether they're in the sector or out, isn't it?
1: Sometimes I think... Governance is is the sector's greatest strength. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, I think, is the sector's greatest weakness, (laughs) and certainly the lack of it. Um, It's, in a way, magnificent but slightly bonkers Mm -hmm. that ultimately the people that run charities are people who aren't qualified in any way to do so, necessarily. necessarily. And, And imagine how stronger that charity would be if the people who were running them were qualified by experience to do so. And um, BT try and fill that gap by um, putting forward people who've been chosen and selected to play a particular role within a charity. It's not just the tap on the shoulder down the golf club. That's not good enough, anyone. Go, that's not good enough. It never was good enough for Scotland's charities. There needs to be a measured approach to what a board needs to run an organisation on which, in some cases, people's lives depend. Um, so, a trustee recruitment is something that. This
0: should get an awful lot better. Uh, and I always have a real reflection that more fundraisers particularly, because that's who most of the people I know in the sector are, have to join boards. I think it's interesting that most fundraisers aren't on boards, and I think that's probably a bigger discussion about how fundraisers are, where they're positioned within the sector and within their organisations, but they need to rise to that position because I know that I have brought something different to my board very much, I also know that I have learned so much. I have so much more knowledge on the other side. I've been on a board for three years. I mean, Valerie, you've been on a few boards. What's your reflection on that role of the trustee and how we can
2: encourage more people from the sector into it? I guess for somebody who works in the charity sector, in a sense, it's our way of giving back Mm. and being able to take joy in the sector from a different angle. And I think, you know, the Enchanted Forest is obviously um, a it's an event, but aside from that, it's also a community fund. So we get to know the charities in Perthshire and at the Highlands and Islands, and and actually how that money makes a difference to to small organisations. So for me, it's been on. The, it's it's just lovely to be on on the, the other side of the of the table, really, during during that. And and as you said about being able to bring your 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 experience to a board, because there are knowledge gaps within boards for sure, you know, and fundraising does fill, fill yeah. those knowledge gaps when required, you know, if there, if there is a need there, but I think you're absolutely right. I think there's, there's definitely a little bit of an inferiority complex, I think, with some fundraisers about feeling that they're not good enough to sit in a board or the board has this magical, magical look about them. So I would fully encourage anybody you know, to, to join a
1: board. I, 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 I totally agree with you both there. i um, um, as a practising fundraiser, and, and, you know, quite a good one. I've been chair of the Institute of Fundraising. I was never asked to join the board. As soon as I became a businessman, I was asked to join the board. Ah. I'm suitably pale, male and stale to be allowed onto the board. Um, and I'm a small businessman, but I was a big fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think the uh, we've got to get out of this nonsense that business equals clever. Yeah. And voluntary sector and particularly fundraising, um, is, is, is something that people are just playing at. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows, I, I, I think, and, and this has been the case since I started. I'm, I'm sure you two are both exactly the same. The fundraising is not considered, um, a proper essential part of the sector. It's a necessary evil, and um, the skills that fundraisers have aren't properly recognised, I guess. And they're actually exceptional skills to to be a, a meaningful part of a board.
0: Uh-huh. And I thought that was beautiful when you said that earlier in the conversation that fundraising is the wind beneath the wings of the entire sector. And I was at something recently where somebody says that all, and it might have even been on the podcast, all or all charitable organizations are fundraising organizations that have a purpose because they all need to find their money, whether that be in the- the way that I would fundraise traditionally or whether that be from even you know government bodies or or funds and things like that everybody has to find the money from somewhere, so every
2: charity is a fundraising organization really isn't it yeah absolutely absolutely, and there's skills in all of those areas you know even if even if it is government um gr- grants that they're looking for, um there's you know that is a skill in itself to be able to write those bids without a doubt. every organization has to have fundraising skill skills of some sort,
0: yeah, exactly, and I think that brings us back. We talked about that intentional leadership, but and I said this on LinkedIn when I was promoting last week's podcast, but having the whole series bookended almost by a Cosvo a Cosvo who I didn't know anything about because I'm not a chief exec perhaps but I didn't know anything about a Cosvo and then this year a Cosvo has played a really big role I think for me because I joined as a associate member because I work in leadership so I'm not a full member because I'm, I'm not a chief exec but the amount of learning that I've been able to do there the amount of contacts that I've made there has been really like sensational actually so there's that support out there but i think people probably need to go and look for that support don't they
1: yeah yeah all kinds of organizations networking is this is the the, the, this is the bee i've got in my bonnet just now Um because i'd run a company i never really respected myself to run a company so i've networked in the voluntary sector i'm networking everywhere just now i was at the africa scotland business network meeting on Wednesday night through in Glasgow. And I swear, I sat during it, these presentations, one of them was by a social enterprise, but the rest were all corporate, about doing business in Malawi, Kenya, Nigeria. And I am sitting scribbling down ideas for BTA, for my clients, for things to do with the team. I'm just picking and soaking this all up just from an engaged bunch of people talking about their organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what, you know, a cause is. that's what the Institute of Fundraising is. I'm a member of uh, EU Consult, which is consultants around Europe getting together to discuss common things of interest about civic society. There's a network of non-profit search consultants I'm in. There's the Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce and so forth. That, I think as many of these things as possible, because we need to learn the, the spirit of the age that we're living in, you know, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's not just going to be found within the voluntary sector. So I think the good thing about COSWO is it actually does bring people in from out with the sector to speak to our leaders, yeah. and that tr- that trickles down.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Definitely. And I think it's that real understanding that we need to find out more. This is a never ending sort of a journey that we're on. And if we can do it and where we're learning quickly from colleagues and people that we've networked with, then all the better, isn't it? And it'll make us all travel faster. What's your reflections been on organisations that are there to support the sector, Vary? I mean, absolutely.
2: I think when I go back to the beginning of my journey in, in the third sector, I kind of didn't get involved in networking groups and didn't get involved with, you know, the the Chartered Institute. I did. I just kind of got on with my job, and mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure I really appreciated the benefits. Yeah. But as time went on and my experience went on, I mean, that completely changed. And you know, networking, I think, is such a vital part. Just really to understand. Not only what you do within your own organisation, but to share that information with colleagues in the sector is just—it's so important. And the amount of information you can apply to your own role is—is is there for us? You know, we just have to, as you said, we ha- we might have to search it out a little bit. But you know, the big organisations are there, and we should be—we should all be getting involved as much as we can.
0: Yeah, yep. So I mean, we've had, as we've said at the start, forty-three conversations about careers through the sector which have been so varied and covered I think almost every role that you could possibly get so for series two we're going to look into something different aren't we Varian
2: so do you want to chat us through that? We've had a full year of starting to know people in the in the sector and what their careers have been and what their careers have gone on to be and we just think it's time to have a look at maybe some insights into the sector so the podcast will change format. Over the course of the next year, we'll be doing it twice a month instead of every week. But we'll be looking at issues within the sector, and whether that's cost of living crisis, whether that's a sustainability. It might be information on trust fundraising. It could be a variety of different topics. But certainly led by the mood that is in the sector at the time and things that are very relevant to everybody. And what we want to do is get a panel of people together. Now, that might just be two people like today, or it could be three or four people who have got you know, insights and knowledge and actually have a proper, thorough discussion about whatever issue, the topic or issue it is that we're talking about. And from that, we really hope that the, the sector can gain insights and benefit from those discussions.
0: Yeah, and I think my feeling certainly was that now if anybody wants to understand how somebody got to where they got to, understand how pe- people's careers work in this sector, then those 43 podcasts will forever be available. And so now it's about bringing something different. And the thing that I always felt was missing this year was that I never spoke to very many funders because obviously a funder didn't have a third sector career because they're a funder. And so I'm really excited about us being able to introduce people onto the podcast for those organisations, for us as BTA to be able to provide that knowledge in a very easily consumable way to colleagues across the sector. What are your reflections on that, Bruce?
1: Yeah, I really like the idea of taking a deep dive into some fundamental bits of knowledge. I think it's tempting in the voluntary sector to to be an all-rounder, isn't it? To to have a, uh, a little bit of knowledge about everything. But there are some things that are just so crucial coming up in an organisation's development that they just really need to own. They really need to go deep on and they really need to get some real genuine expertise. And often there are things that the sector is really just starting to learn about itself. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea of a panel of people who can take a, an issue and, and bat it back and forward and bring their expertise to bear, respond to other people's questions, I think that's how we can go really deep into some of these, these topics that are of, of, of fundamental interest to the sector. Not every podcast will be of absolute interest to everybody, but I think it'll be useful showing the sort of discovery of, of, of deeper thinking about each of these subjects.
0: Yeah, and hopefully we have the opportunity and the panel guests to join us to talk about things that are happening in real time. You know, I think that would be really interesting because there's lots of things we could think about just now that we definitely know we would want to cover. But equally, it will be good in the middle of something that is happening to be able to have informed people from the sector
2: talk about that. I think that will be really valuable, won't it? Well, it absolutely will be valuable. I mean, I think we might gloss over things and chat about them and moan about them a little bit, you know, whether that's things like governance or, or whatever that is. But when things come up, you know, whether that's on the news or just within the sector itself or, or something we're just we're just reading about and just chatting about, then to be able to have a live conversation about that and but not from a gossipy angle, more from a, a teaching mm-hmm. angle about, you know, that you go about that
0: it's been a great year thank you for the opportunity to join bta on this podcast journey i've really enjoyed it so thank you for the opportunity bruce and Vary.
1: Well, thank you, Anne. I mean, it's really been a pleasure. I mean, I think you've brought a warmth to all of the conversations. It's, it's made them really nice. It's been an enjoyable experience listening to them. I hope next year is just as interesting. And perhaps, perhaps we might find a set of circumstances next year that are just a little bit more favourable to the voluntary sector than we've had over the last year. But, you know, it's, we're resilient. We'll always bounce back. Always. That's, I, I truly believe in the sector. And I'm absolutely certain that next year it will bounce back stronger than ever so look forward to seeing you all on the other side of new year
0: thank you